Awesome. Uh, it's wonderful to be here, and uh, it's my wonderful privilege to bring to you God's Word this morning. Uh, we're actually going to start with the Bible reading, uh, which I'm going to invite our sister Vivian to come and read to us. If you want to turn to your Bibles, uh, to Luke chapter 16, and uh, I'll hand over to Viv. Thanks, Viv. Good morning, church. So the Bible reading is Luke 16, 1 to 15. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I am not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The, an the manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than they are in people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, and you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your heart. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Viv. In the 20 years or so that I've been a Christian, I cannot actually remember the last time I heard a sermon on this particular parable. Uh, perhaps it's one of those that really does leave you scratching your head. I think it was either this year or last year where we did uh, at camp, we got the various teams, the four different teams to do different skits. And they were, I think they all had a different parable. And I remember just thinking, oh, wouldn't it be interesting to give one of the teams this parable? Uh, needless to say, they struggled. I don't think they understood the meaning of the actual passage. Um, but it all ended up very interesting anyway. Um, I think the most obvious thing that happens when we read this parable is that there's no one to really identify with. There doesn't appear to be any virtuous characters. Uh, there's no obvious good Samaritan here. There's no prodigal son who we are to emulate. Uh, instead, we're introduced to a very shady cast of characters. Uh, at the center of the parable, of course, is the dishonest manager. Uh, this lazy or greedy manager, he's been caught squandering his master's money. 
Someone's seen him, they've reported it to his master, and now he needs to figure out what he's going to do with his life. By his very own confession, he's not strong enough to dig and he's too ashamed to beg. In other words, he's not hardworking and he's too proud to ask for help. The accusations against him appear to be legitimate ones. And so, in a last-ditch effort to secure his own future, he shamelessly offers a couple of underhanded discounts. With complete disregard to any notion of what is right and what is wrong, he cheats his master of even more of his wealth. And then we have the two debtors. The two debtors that are mentioned in the story appear to be equally dubious in their nature. The first one owes the master 900 gallons of oil. This is worth roughly three years' wages, maybe between $200,000 and $300,000 in today's terms. That's a lot of money. The manager thinks quickly and he just decides to discount it by a whopping 50%, just like that. The man owing the master this oil, he, he doesn't ask any questions, does he? He doesn't ask why or how, where does this discount come from? And to be honest, he doesn't want to know why or how. He sees a lucrative deal and he knows better than to ask questions. Likewise, the second debtor, owing a thousand bushels of wheat, is granted a sizable 20% discount. Surely he too must suspect that something is fishy. But just like the other man, he does nothing to find out more. He puts that all out of his mind as he too can't sign on the dotted line fast enough. And finally, there's the master himself. He's clearly a very, very rich man. He's got a large portfolio that requires a manager to run the day-to-day -day tasks. We also know how rich he is because of the sheer size of the debts that he's owed. However, in a shocking turn of events that today's Hollywood writers would be jealous of, the master does not resort to punishment. Unlike the harsh judgments that we often see in Jesus' other parables, this master stands out. Not only does he spare this manager from the weeping and gnashing of teeth, but he actually commends him. This is so shocking because common sense would dictate that the one who should be most furious, who should want retribution the most, is this master. After all, it was his money, it was his possessions that were taken. And yet, astonishingly, this master is instead impressed by such an unscrupulous character. Rather than condemning him, the master acknowledges the shrewdness of this manager's actions. Surely there's never been such an unjust character used in Jesus' parables since the unjust judge coming in Luke chapter 18. And where does this leave the rest of us? Us as hearers of this message today. And probably also his disciples back in the first century. They were probably as perplexed as to what Jesus could possibly mean by this story. Of course, in most of Jesus' parables, it's relatively easy to figure out who the good person is, who the one we should emulate is, but here it's not so straightforward. However, similarly to many of his other parables, the true meaning of this one is only revealed to those who really want to seek the truth. What, what lesson is Jesus trying to teach his disciples? If nobody in this parable is a good role model for us, then what are we to make of it? Fortunately, we don't need to look too far. Jesus gives us the very answer to this question. In Jesus' teachings, he makes many references to money or possessions. 
It's commonly been said that 11 of the 39 parables that he shares are to do with money or possessions. Certainly this parable and its lesson is one of the most direct teachings in which, fi- in which Jesus tells us how we should handle our money. If you've ever had to make a financial decision and wondered, what would Jesus do? Then this passage should be a key one for us to understand. And just a little forewarning before we investigate the scriptures today. If we think that God only cares about us tithing 10% and that we can do whatever we want with the rest of it, then today's message will seriously challenge our attitude towards money and how we use it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus and his teaching. Lord, I pray that even though today's passage might be hard for us to understand initially, that, Lord, you would use your Holy Spirit working within us to help us illuminate our minds, to understand what you're trying to say to us. And, God, whatever you're saying, that we would listen, that we would take to heart what you have for us. God, you know that this message is definitely for me today. Father, I pray it would be relevant too for your church, for your people, that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus says in verse 8, The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. The master didn't commend the manager because he was dishonest or unscrupulous. The master wasn't commending the fact that he was corrupt, that he was selfish, or that he lacked any sense of morality. The master commended him because of his shrewdness. Someone who is shrewd is someone who has keen insight and good judgment. They have the ability to make smart decisions, often often with an understanding of how to gain an advantage or achieve a particular goal. Someone who is shrewd with money knows how to maximize their money effectively. They're financially savvy. They know where and when to invest and how to put their money to work. How did this manager demonstrate shrewdness? Well, he knew that he was going to be in some very real trouble very soon. He's about to lose his job, and after the master reclaims what he's owed, he's going to be left bankrupt and homeless. So he devises the plan to use his master's money to secure his own future. Through two large acts of generosity to to two fellow businessmen, he ensures that they will be obligated to help him in return. When he's broken homeless, he'll be able to call upon these two debtors to return the favour. Moreover, if they chose to ignore him, he could go as far as ruining their names. He might accuse them, saying, Look, I did this guy a solid. I gave him a bunch of money, and he couldn't be bothered to lend me a hand in return when I needed it. What kind of person is he? Now, while the means by which he achieved it were clearly immoral, the scheme itself was indeed a cunning one or a shrewd one. And thus, the manager was able to successfully use worldly wealth to gain for himself friends, so that after everything was taken away from him, he would still be welcomed by his master's debtors. This ingenious plan is what causes the master to commend this dishonest manager. Jesus says, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. See, what Jesus really wants us to get here 
is the reality of what our world is like. The people of this world are better at dealing with worldly wealth than the people of God are. In this respect, the culture in Jesus' time is not so different to ours today. There are many still who are constantly on the lookout for quick wealth or opportunities to make money swiftly. People are often drawn to the lure of the next Bitcoin for financial schemes or lucrative investments, always in pursuit of the next big opportunity. And part of this need for money is because society wrongly measures a person's success by their wealth. We think that if a person has a well-paying job, or owns their own property, or drives a particular car, or wears certain brands of clothes, that they are therefore successful and must be respected. Our highest goal is to attain the most comfortable lifestyle that we can afford. That's why we fill our houses with so much stuff. And so naturally, much of our time and energy is devoted to amassing our own fortunes. I know this because I'm like this. I don't need to be told how to use my money and possessions to enhance my own comfort. I'm naturally always looking for ways to do that all the time. Whenever we buy something, we assess whether this purchase is a good deal or not and try to find a better one. The number of kayaks that I've bought this year alone is incriminating evidence of this. Seven, I think. Every day, we're making multiple transactions and weighing up the value of our money with everything now that's accessible online, we're subscribing to more services than ever and purchasing things at any time of the day or night right from our phones. And in this sense, we've become very much attuned to using money like this shrewd manager. We have learnt how to manage our finances to get ahead in life. And all of this is evidence of a worldly type of shrewdness. Does Jesus commend this kind of shrewdness in our lives? Our knack for spotting a good deal for making a property investment profitable or for reducing our tax liability? No, none of those things earn his approval. Those things don't impress him any more than the rich fool who built many barns to store his excess grain. He thought that he could eat and drink and be merry the rest of his life, and yet his life was demanded from him that very night. He fit all the criteria to be considered successful in this world, but his fatal mistake was that he was not rich towards God. Jesus wants to highlight the contrast between the people of this world and the people of the light. He's saying that unbelievers are more astute, they're more shrewd about the things of this world than believers are about the things of the world to come. Worldly shrewdness, that means building up treasures here on earth, where moth and vermin destroy and thieves break in and steal. Sinful people act to secure their own, feature, own future in very clever and ingenious ways. They use their resources that they've got access to, whether honestly or dishonestly, to secure the best future that they can. And they're really good at it. They're better at it than Christians are when it comes to investing in heavenly treasure, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. As people of faith, we ought to apply a similar shrewdness and mindset when using worldly wealth for eternal purposes. The argument follows that if worldly people can use their resources for their own worldly gain, how much more should those who walk in the light be wise in using their resources for eternal gain? The master commended the manager because he was shrewd. We ought to be shrewd in how we use our worldly wealth to build God's kingdom so that we can glorify our master in heaven.
Does that mean we then go and employ the same methods that this dishonest manager had by lying, cheating, stealing to get all we can? No, of course not. And Jesus goes on to spell out exactly how, how we can be shrewd with our money. Let's look at verse 9. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. At first glance, this verse can be quite confusing. Is it suggesting that we can somehow purchase friendship as easily as picking up an item off a supermarket shelf? And these acquired friends, are they meant to wait for us in heaven? How do we use our worldly wealth to secure lasting friendships in eternity? Well, it turns out that the answer itself is relatively straightforward. It means that we invest our money into anything that will bring others closer to knowing Jesus Christ. We invest in any endeavor that furthers the spread of the gospel and facilitates the making of more disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to build up for ourselves treasures in heaven. You see, we can't take anything with us into heaven, can we? Jesus explicitly tells us that in this very verse that we've just read. 1 Timothy 6-7 says, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. All our material stuff is temporary. Everything we've built and everything that we work so, far, so hard for will go on to become someone else's problem when we die. And then they'll die, and it'll go to someone else. Until one day, nobody knows when, it will all cease to exist. One cent invested in eternity will soon be worth infinitely more than all the riches anyone or any empire could amass here on earth. How foolish it would be to spend your entire life working for something that does not last. Now, if that's a sobering thought, then let me give you the good news. You can, today, invest in something infinitely more valuable. God has given us the supreme privilege of being able to co-labor with Christ in bringing about the salvation of many friends. One day we will share heaven with all other believers who have trusted in Jesus for their salvation. They're the friends who will welcome us into our heavenly home in which Jesus has prepared for us. Therefore, invest your wealth. Invest your wealth in missionaries and organizations that send missionaries. Give to those who preach and share the gospel. Donate to those who train up preachers and sharers of the gospel. Contribute to those whose work is dedicated to sharing the love of Christ in schools, in universities, in workplaces, in homes, in private and in public. Be generous to the church and support community outreach. Here at GCC, we officially support a variety of missionaries and organizations whose purpose is to reach others for Jesus. Of course, our dear friends here today, Mimi and Didi, uh, work tirelessly to bring the gospel to those to the Bunong in Cambodia. You can ask Joe, myself, or Uncle Sun Leng and find out more about CCSM, the Chinese Church Support Missionaries. You can ask about Pastor Chinek and Map, or Kaichi and Ayumi in Japan, amongst a variety of others. And if we even look back at just this year, we've had the privilege of hearing here at the pulpit what God is doing in different ministries around Australia and the world. A handful that I, could, that I thought of just yesterday include Pam's missionary friend, Bethany. David North came and spoke to us from Ambassadors for Christ International. Bob Mendelson at Jews for Jesus. Adam, the director of Cape and Ray Bible School, who was our camp speaker. Ivan Allegria from Chile, ministering at the World of Life. 
and even Jonathan Barnett from Horizons Family Law, and probably others that I can't even recall. All of these people rely on the generosity of Christians like you and I to support their vision, which is ultimately to fulfill the Great Commission. They've dedicated their livelihoods to making friends in eternity, and it would be shrewd for us to invest in such fruitful and lasting work. You should also invest in your own training so that you can teach, so that you can share the gospel with your friends. Use your house, use your car, use your money to bless your friends and even strangers so that they too can discover the love of Jesus because of you. When we partner with those who advocate for the gospel, we get to share in their triumphs and victories. We have the privilege of contributing to the salvation of many friends, many of whom we will never meet until we get to heaven. Just as the shrewd manager strategized a way to secure friends for his future, we should have a clear plan for our worldly wealth and how we will exchange it for that of heavenly value. That's what it means to use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now I hear some of you, some of you might say to me, well, I don't have all that much to give. I'm just getting by, repaying the mortgage on my house, or maybe when, maybe when I've paid off the house, that's when I'll give more. I'm not a millionaire like so-and-so. I've got bills to pay and a family to feed. Maybe you're a child or a student and you don't have a source of income. And you think, if I just had more, then I would give more. Well, Jesus says, you're wrong. Look what he says in verse 10. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. You see, it doesn't really matter how much you have. If you're not faithful with the very little that you have now, then you're not going to be faithful with any more. The amount of wealth that you possess does not change your level of faithfulness. A faithful person is faithful regardless of how much is sitting in their bank account. And likewise, an unfaithful or dishonest person is that way inclined whether they have a little or a lot. The reason that this is true is because it is ultimately a question of our hearts. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Most of us have no problem spending money on going on holiday. And that's because we love going on holidays and we'll budget appropriately so that we can afford that. We'll make sacrifices now so that we can go on holiday later. Now, of course, I'm not saying that going on holidays is wrong. I like going on holidays too. But how does your holiday spending compare to how much you invest in the kingdom of God? Do you find it easier to justify the money that you spent on travel compared to the amount that you give to ministry purposes? Are you eager and excited about talking and dreaming about your next vacation? How does that excitement compare to hearing about the advancement of the gospel in that very same country that you are visiting? Someone whose heart that is set on heaven will generously and joyfully give to gospel purposes. On the other hand, someone whose heart is set on earthly things will find giving is a burden, an offering given reluctantly or regretfully. Instead of finding reasons to give, they find excuses to withhold. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. It's your desire or lack thereof of eternal things that is the question. A million dollars won't change your heart. Only God can do that. An extra million dollars will only divide your heart even further. 
You're either faithful and your heart is set on things above, or you're not. As we'll soon see, you'll either hate God and love money, or you'll love God and hate money. You cannot serve two masters. Your attitude towards money and how you use it, whether you have a little or a lot, will ultimately reveal where your heart is and where your treasure is. Verse 11, Jesus goes on. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Uh, At my workplace, I manage a small team of about five devs. Uh, Whenever someone new joins, I'll start them off with a relatively easy task. I'll give it to them, fully expecting that they'll be able to, to do that task competently and without too much trouble. But if for some reason they struggle to complete it or they make obvious errors, then I'll hold off on giving them more complex tasks until they've proven themselves ready. The same principle applies to how we handle worldly wealth. If you can't prove yourself worthy of managing temporary wealth now, you're not going to be able to handle real, lasting, heavenly treasure later. If you've been pouring your effort into accumulating worldly stuff and neglecting the things of God in this lifetime, then know that you are forfeiting yourself of true, eternal riches of infinitely greater value in the next. Furthermore, Jesus goes on to say in verse 12, And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of of your own? It turns out that everything we own is actually not ours. We may have worked for it, and, and maybe you think you've earned it, and maybe you sacrificed for it and paid for it, but none of it is actually really yours. It's only on loan to you for the small, p- brief period, the blink of an eye. Everything belongs to God. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Psalm 50, 10 and 12, God says, For every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. This is the concept of biblical stewardship. Just as the manager was in charge of the master's finances, so have we been put in charge of the things that ultimately belong to God. God is the one who gives us our wealth and the ability to produce wealth. We have the opportunity to manage all of it on his behalf, not just 10% of it. So in this verse, Jesus is really saying, if we haven't been good stewards of the property that God has loaned to us here, then how can we be trusted with eternal rewards? Do you remember the parable of the talents in Matthew 25? The first two servants, through their wise and faithful management, multiplied what they had been entrusted with and pleased their master. However, the third servant, out of fear or negligence, buried his talent in the ground and made no effort to use it for growth or benefit. Even the little that he had was taken away from him. So it shall be for those of us who are poor stewards of the material wealth that God has so richly provided us with. God expects us to be good stewards of all that he's provided richly for us, recognizing that these blessings are meant to be used for his purposes and the furtherment of his kingdom. Verse 13. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus emphasizes this crucial point. 
you cannot serve two masters. The master-slave relationship back in Jesus' day was a little different to how we think about, say, an employer or or employee relationship. Back then, masters had complete legal ownership and authority over their slaves, making them their property. A master had exclusive ownership over what a slave could or could not do. It would have been impossible for a slave to effectively serve two different masters at the same time. You see, God wants our undivided loyalty. He wants us to love and to worship him exclusively, including with our finances. If we're not clear on our priorities, we'll find ourselves wavering between conflicting desires. Every financial decision that that we have will be a source of inner turmoil. If our focus is solely on amassing earthly wealth, then we will despise any opportunities to invest in spiritual things. Our hearts will grow hard to the spirit convicting us of our greed. You see, God and money are two very different masters, and they are diametrically opposed. They both want exclusive ownership of our hearts. It is impossible to wholeheartedly love both God and money. We must choose one or the other. Hear the clear warning from 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. If your life's goal right now is to get as rich as you can and to live as comfortable a life as you can, then these words are for you. This ambition of yours is not compatible with God's will for your life. It's not that you can't have money, and it's not that you can't enjoy, enjoy nice things. You can have lots of money and not love it. It is possible. And you can have very little money and yet love it so much. But heed the warnings about having much wealth. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Your allegiance is what matters the most. Will you make your life about building God's kingdom and using your worldly wealth for his purposes, or will you use it to serve yourself? You must decide, because you cannot serve both God and money. Finally, in verse, end of verse 14 and 15, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. In this passage, we witness the clash between the teachings of Jesus and the values held by the Pharisees, who were enamored with money. Jesus' words cut through their self-righteousness and highlight the truth. God sees beyond our outward appearances, and he knows our hearts. For those of us who have earnestly sought to place God at the center of our lives, this knowledge can bring us great comfort and assurance. He recognizes our genuine desires and devotion. However, there is a sobering message for those of us who pretend to serve God while harboring a love for the fleeting treasures of this world. God also sees your heart, and he understands the allure of money, of power, position, and the praise of men, things that are highly valued in this world. Yet Jesus reminds us that in God's sight, these worldly pursuits are not only fleeting, but they are detestable. They're detestable because they compete for the place that should belong to God alone in our lives. 
As we reflect on these truths, let us examine our hearts. Are we genuinely putting God first, seeking his kingdom, and prioritizing eternal treasures? Or are we distracted, allowing the desires of this temporary life to overshadow the things that should really matter? Are we intentionally, mindfully, strategically, shrewdly investing in gospel initiatives that will gain for us friends who will welcome us into eternal dwellings? May we choose to align our hearts with God's desires, forsaking the detestable pursuit of the temporary over the eternal, and embrace the everlasting riches that are found only in his love and his grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today's message indeed is a sober run, probably for many of us. Lord, I pray that uh, your word today would strike our hearts at their very core. I pray, God, that you would help us to be vulnerable to you and to your Holy Spirit working inside us. Lord, I pray that you would renew our minds and our hearts, that you would renew our perspectives when it comes to the way that we handle our worldly wealth. Father, we, rec- we recognize that you have blessed us abundantly with so much, and yet, God, we confess that we have not been very good stewards of what you've given us. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us that your Holy Spirit would do the painful work of changing our hearts. Lord, may we not resist your Holy Spirit in shaping our desires. May you replace our hearts with new ones. And Father, may we seek to honor and glorify you instead. Father, I pray that we would love you not just with our lips, not just in song, but I pray that we would love you with everything that we have, with our time, with our energy, and even today, as we've heard, with our money as well. May you be glorified. May you be the center of our life. May you be the number one priority. And may you take place over anything else that competes with you. Father, we pray that you'd have your way and that you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.